This is Carol Foster at 2 Timothy 2.15 Resources, and I am so excited that you're going to join me today as we study God's Word. The response new Messianic believers give when asked why they initially visited a Messianic congregation is, we knew there had to be more. As we study together, we will begin to see that yes, indeed, there has to be more. For additional study aids to assist you in studying along with us, go to our website, sectim.org. The last time we were together, we had begun to study the second plague, as described in Shemot, or Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. I divided this account into two sections. The first, the plague itself, and the second was the rescinding of the plague. We had just completed this first section. Again, it is so important to read the text in its context, so I want to read these verses before we continue to the next phase of this plague. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 7 reads, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants, and on your people, and into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come up on you, and your people, and all your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. The magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. In this second plague account, we discover the first actual note of warning is sounded. If you refuse to let them go, I will. Warnings would accompany most of the demands hereafter. This particular warning refers to a consequence that was mainly offensive rather than truly dangerous. What was actually threatened was the ugliness of having slimy, unsanitary, unpleasant-to-the-touch amphibians everywhere and the constant annoyance of having to listen to them croak throughout all parts of people's houses. Implied is the disgust that would occur when people stepped on the frogs. As far as we know, Egyptians did not wear shoes indoors. When they rolled over on them in their bed, again, people slept on mats on the floor, not in elevated beds as Westerners think of beds. And when they were surprised by them in various places thought otherwise to be clean, such as feeding troughs, ovens, and even their kneading bowls. This plague was of particular significance to Pharaoh because the promise this plague would affect him to the same degree that it affected all other Egyptians. As we read in verse 3, The Nile will swarm with frogs which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed. The first plague was presumably of little personal hardship for him. Others brought him water, which had either been purchased from the Israelites or from freshly dug wells, so all he missed was his usual bath in the Nile. 
Now, however, he would quite possibly encounter just as many frogs and be just as repulsed by them as anyone else, except the Israelites, who were always indirectly and sometimes explicitly exempt from the plagues. The implied progression of status by addressing first Pharaoh, then his officials, then the people in general, in verse 3, is partly reversed in verse 4, where it is Pharaoh, you, the people, and the officials, respectively. This double listing with different order of elements is a way of emphasizing that no one would escape the effects of this plague. Actually, the point of the descriptions of verses 2 and 4 is to make clear that virtually no person, place, or thing would be immune from the frog infestation. If kneading troughs and even baking ovens, places where frogs would never normally be found, were to be infested, surely little else would be free from the plague. Although we may assume that this speech to Pharaoh was delivered by Moshe as instructed, the delivery itself is not mentioned. This part of the variation of the plague accounts that keeps them from being overly rigid. The hearer or reader simply assumes the repetition in the presence of Pharaoh. The original language used here for swarm is the word shiratz, It only occurs 14 times in the Bible in its qual form, which is the simplest form of an active verb tense. It means to swarm, multiply, or increase abundantly, to breed abundantly once, and bring forth abundantly. It gives the picture of being innumerable and to move about quickly in large numbers, often randomly. This is not painting a pretty picture. We also discovered that Pharaoh heard what Moshe was saying, but, again, unlike the previous plague, turning the Nile into blood, Pharaoh was affected directly by the influx of frogs. In the first plague, Pharaoh saw what was going on, but did not consider himself to be involved or to be really affected. We discussed that this is like many believers today, and, yes, us included at times. We see that Yahweh has spoken to us, but because we do not see the immediate impact on our daily lives, we are choosing not to be obedient. In all actuality, we are saying, I'm not going to do that now, or if you tell me again, then I will do it. In this way, we asked ourselves the question, am I really any different from Pharaoh? As in the previous plague, Yahweh is also making a statement regarding the gods, little g, of Egypt. With the plague of the water to blood, it was actually three gods. Kunnam, the guardian of the Nile, Hapi, the spirit of the Nile, and Orisurus, the Nile as the bloodstream of Egypt. If you would like to find out more about these gods, please listen to our previous episodes available on Hebrew Nation Online. The website is www.hebrewnationonline.com backslash Torah studies backslash there has to be more. The Egyptian god Hekit took the form of a frog and he was the god of resurrection. This frog god was not only worshipped as the god or goddess of resurrection, 
but also was the one that they worshipped to assist women in fertility and childbirth. Again, the image of the goddess was a frog. She was also worshipped as the goddess of fertility of the land. Let's move on to see if Pharaoh has a change of heart, now that he personally is affected by the plague of frogs. We find this in verses 8 through 15 of the same chapter. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me when I shall entreat for you, and your servants and your people, that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses, that they may be left only in the Nile. Then he said, Tomorrow. So he said, May it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the God, our God. The frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They will be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. The Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses and the courts and the fields. So they piled them in heaps, and the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Of special interest in this portion of the frog story is Pharaoh's opportunity to choose the time of the frog's removal. Giving the Egyptian king this power of timing is, from a human point of view, brilliant on Yahweh's part. If the king could say when the frogs would go away, he would personally know that the timing was not due to the simple consequences of natural processes or by the actions of the gods of Egypt, but the sovereignty of the God of Israel. Theologically speaking, this plague was the point at which Pharaoh should have been able to admit that there was a true, powerful God behind the demands voiced by Moses. His refusal to believe even then is an example for all people who, though confronted with the reasonableness of the biblical truth, nevertheless refuse to believe by reason of factors other than the believability of the evidence. We read in verse 8 that Pharaoh did not call for his magicians to remove the frogs. Therefore, it's already becoming apparent that Pharaoh placed little stock in the so-called ability of the magicians to replicate the production of the frogs on a small scale, since getting rid of them rather than producing more of them was what Pharaoh was driven to seek. His request to Moshe to pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people implies as well that he by now knew that Yahweh existed and could control parts of nature that the Egyptians previously thought control parts of nature the Egyptians previously thought were the sole province of their own gods. What Pharaoh was offering in return was still, of course, merely the chance to offer sacrifices to the Lord a privilege far short of what he by now almost surely understood was the Israelite demand, which was full freedom from Egypt. I want to read Moshe's response to Pharaoh. We find this in verse 9. 
the honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses, that they may be left only in the Nile? The literal translation of the Hebrew of the first part of verse 9 is, Honor yourself over me as to the time for me to pray for you. We should note here the significance of what Moshe was offering. The words, pray for you and your official and your people, may be summarized by Yeshua's words in Matthew or Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And again in Luke chapter 6, verse 28, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Praying for one's enemy is, therefore, not a concept initiated in the Brit Hadashah, but is in fact first encountered in the Tanakh. The wording of the final part of verse 9, Moshe said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me, when shall I entreat, pray or intercede for you and your servants and your people, that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses, that they may be left only in the Nile. Now, we might question Pharaoh's response to Moshe, asking basically, when do you want the frogs to go away, as found in verse 10. Then he said, tomorrow. So he said, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Since the quoted parts of the conversation between Moshe and Pharaoh represent only a small portion of the total dialogue that surely took place between them, we can assume that Pharaoh understood that Moshe's offer in verse 9 of setting the time was understood to mean set the day. You and I might ask why Pharaoh didn't say today instead of tomorrow. After all, why not get rid of a nuisance as soon as possible? Moreover, verse 12 also implies that Moshe prayed earnestly for a period of time in intercession the next day. Our modern style of quick prayers tends to blind us to how normal and commonly lengthy intercessory prayers were in Bible times. So both Pharaoh and Moshe may well have assumed that at least a day would be needed for intercession with Yahweh, and therefore Pharaoh had in fact requested the earliest possible moment for relief from the frogs. Moshe practiced here a form of what today is called, in some quarters, prayer evangelism. In saying that he would pray for a result, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God, he was offering Pharaoh, even though in the context of an adversarial relationship, the opportunity to understand the uniqueness of the true God. Knowing Yahweh as he did, he could be confident of this prediction. In verse 11 it states, The frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They will be left only in the Nile. Moshe was certain that his prayers would indeed be answered. After all, he was already well aware that the confrontation with Pharaoh would end in the death of the Egyptian firstborn, as we've previously read in chapter 4, verse 23, and not simply by means of a relatively preliminary plague, such as the frogs. 
Verses 12 through 15 are the final section of the story of the second plague and demonstrates Yahweh's gracious willingness to respond to Moshe's intercessory prayer. Again, I want to read these verses so that we can remain in context. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. The Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, the courts, and the fields. So they piled them in heaps, and the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This final section of the story of the second plague demonstrates Yahweh's gracious willingness to respond to Moshe's intercessory prayer, as we read in verses 12 and 13. This passage also reminds the hearer and the reader of the enormity of the plague, and it affirms that all happened consistent with Yahweh's control of Pharaoh's actions, as predicted by Yahweh in the first place, as we read in verse 15. Just a side note. First, the stench of the river, and now the stench of the dead frogs, piled in heaps, makes me think of the stench of sin and evil that arises from a sinful land that does not acknowledge Yahweh as their God and walk in his paths. The need for a Savior, one who reconciles us back to the Father, is apparent throughout the Word as redemption is written in all the pages of his love letter to us that calls us back to him. The contrast between the foul land and the stench that arises from it is then contrasted to the sweet aroma of the saints' righteous lives and their prayers. We find this confirmed in the following passages. 2 Corinthians 2.15 reads, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Ephesians 5.1-2 states, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And finally in Philippians chapter 4 verse 18 we read But I have received everything in full and have an abundance I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphrodites what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Just a question. What kind of fragrance or aroma is going up from our country today? Or from our lives? Is it the sweet aroma of walking as imitators of Yahweh and Yeshua? Or is it the stench of a stick-necked and disobedient people? Back on track. If we were to paraphrase verse 12, Then Moshe and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moshe cried to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. We have the idea that Moshe and Aaron did not wait for the next day to begin crying out to Yahweh. It has the concept that they left Pharaoh and that Moshe immediately began to intercede or to cry out to Yahweh to show his power and might and to remove the frogs on the exact day that Pharaoh had stated. 
These verses describe the power of prayer when a faithful servant of the one true God prays in accordance with his master's will. Moshe might have had good reason to assume that the frogs would eventually go away on their own, but he had certainly not been notified by Yahweh that they would die off on the day Pharaoh had specified. Accordingly, he prayed earnestly for a result that, from his point of view at least, was not guaranteed, but in faith and trust that Adonai would do what he asked if his prayers were proper. It was, and the frogs died off suddenly, enough that they could be gathered in heaps to decompose and smell, as in verse 14 indicates. According to Yahweh's already announced plan, this plague was not what would cause Pharaoh to release the Israelites. It would be, in fact, met with no success in light of Yahweh's making Pharaoh stubborn, as we've read earlier. So verse 15 reminds us, the reader, in, in effect, that there's much more to come before Yahweh is finished with Egypt and its king. Before we move on to our next sign, I want us to again think about Pharaoh's response of, okay, I want Yahweh to do it tomorrow. Have you ever known what Yahweh has asked you to do and responded with, yes, I'll do it tomorrow? I know that this may sound a little reverse in context, but let's think about this. Pharaoh could have asked that the frogs be removed right now, or in an hour, or maybe this evening, but he didn't. He asked that they be removed tomorrow. I know there may have been things in my life that Yahweh has asked me to remove, such as anger, gossip, or maybe an attitude, and I have said, yes, remove it tomorrow. What am I really saying to Yahweh? I'm not ready to let go of whatever it is you're asking me to give up, to quit doing or saying and thinking. I'll do it tomorrow, but not today. Maybe it isn't giving something up. Maybe it's beginning or to start something. I know that I've had this experience, namely with wearing tzitzit. I know that the word says to wear them, but I rationalize with myself. Now I know that you probably don't do this. I said, what if I offend a Jewish person who I see? What if I wear them on an undergarment? Is that okay? It seems that so many of Yahweh's requests of us can be pushed away by, what if? For me, this path of reasoning always leads me to, I will decide tomorrow. Hasatan used this same strategy in the garden with Eve. What if Yahweh says, isn't true? Now, he wasn't that bold. He was much more subtle. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Hasatan then followed with, You will surely not die, for God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Question and doubt are the biggest weapons that he uses against the believer, and I must truthfully tell you that there are times that I struggle with this. I know that I'm not the only one that does. We have to recognize this for what it is. It is disobedience. But there is Yahweh's truth and forgiveness as spoken in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The final statement documenting this event is found in verse 15. 
But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. My prayer for myself and for you, our listeners, is that we will be obedient to the calling of Yahweh in our lives, both for the big things and for the little things, that our hearts remain open to the quickening of the Ruach, that we take every thought captive into the obedience of Messiah, and that we quickly act upon what he tells us, that our lives would then be a sweet aroma, a pleasing fragrance rising up to our King of Kings. For additional study aids, please go to my ministry website, www.sectim.org. Join us next time as we look at gnats, mosquitoes, and flies. Oh, my! Thank you for joining us today as we delve into the beautiful truths of God's Word to indeed discover that there has to be more. I pray that the Word applied to your daily life will bring a deeper understanding of His love letter written just to you. Let me remind you that we have additional study aids to assist you with our studies together on our website, sectim.org. May this day fill you with the love of God, joy, and shalom, nothing missing, nothing broken in your life.